This is not an indictment on manhood. It's actually an invitation to men. And it's not about calling men out for what they're doing wrong. It's really about calling men in to be better and different. You're listening to Work Hard, Parent Hard, a podcast by Mirza. Mirza is a company on a mission to close the gender pay gap. Our inaugural season, How to Dad, is all about masculinity and fatherhood for the modern parent. Hi, I'm Saran Tao, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Mirza. Hi, I'm Mel Faxon. I am the co-founder and COO of Mirza, a company on the mission to close the gender pay gap. So we're talking to someone today who's all about redefining masculinity. Ted is a co-founder of A Call to Men, and he's going to talk to us about this very issue in a beautiful and supportive and positive way. We are so excited to talk to Ted today, not only because of his organization and the things that they do to help young men and boys learn all about how to prevent violence against women, but also his stance on what masculinity means and how we redefine that for all men in a way that lets men understand that they are part of a systemic problem of toxic masculinity rather than individually necessarily being that problem and giving them the tools to understand how to overcome that. Ted, thank you so much for joining us today. We are thrilled beyond measure to have you with us. Uh, To get started, can you introduce yourself, please? My name is Ted Bunch. I'm the co-founder and chief development officer for A Call to Men. A Call to Men is a national violence prevention organization. Our vision is to create a world where all men and boys are loving and respectful and all women, girls, and those in the margins of the margins are valued and safe. I love that. Oh, such a good organization. So how do you define masculinity? Okay, so let's start there then, because this is so important. It's really around being your authentic self, whatever that means. So I won't define it because what it might be for your male identified viewers or listeners for this podcast might be different for me. So there's not a judgment there. But I will say some things that are principles of healthy manhood. We embrace and express our full range of emotions, that we do not say things that denigrate women, girls, or anyone who does not conform to those rigid notions of gender that we've been taught, that we challenge our own ideas of gender, that we value the life of women outside of a sexual conquest, that we don't seek to always be in control, that we can ask for help, that that's not a sign of weakness. All of those things create healthy manhood. And so how I identify myself in my own masculinity and my own manhood, there's so many things that I can identify that also women also do. I see myself as a protector and a provider. That's one of the things that if if we were to ask men, give me some characteristics of the man box, they would say, protector, provider. Yep, that's right. But women are protectors and providers too. Like men don't own that. Right? (laughs) Actually, if I was to ask most men who's protected you more in your life, they're probably going to say their mom more so than their dad. If I look at strength, that's something that might be in the man box. That's something that I appreciate as a man, but women are strong too. Actually, if I ask men, if we take the physical ability, how much you can lift, 
how many bags you can move, the pieces of furniture you can move. Take that out of the definition of strength. Do you know more strong women or strong men? Strong women. So it's really the lenses that we see things through on our sexist lenses. And no one's to blame for that. It's what we've inherited. I have male privilege, and every man has male privilege, whether they want it or not, or whether you believe it or not, you do. White folks are realizing that they got white privilege, whether they want it or not, or believe it or not, too, right? Because things are being revealed in ways that they've never been revealed before. And the same thing is with gender. So when I look at healthy and respectful manhood, these are the things that we really look at and modeling that for other people. So my authentic self would be this. For the first 10 years of my marriage, I would probably bring, I'd bring home flowers about every week, every other week and give them to my wife and she would appreciate it. And she, she you know, her friends would be, oh, he's so sweet and this and that. And, and it occurred to me though, if I didn't bring flowers home, she wasn't really saying, where are my flowers? Right? It occurred to me eight or 10 years in, like, you know what? I'm getting the flowers because I like flowers. I like having the flowers in the house. But it was safer for me to bring it as a gift for her. I didn't even connect it till much later on that, oh, those flowers are about for me. So now when I go out, I'm buying flowers for me. I'm choosing them differently. I like the way they smell when I come in the house. I like the way they look, the colors. I'm, I'm, I'm not getting the arranged bouquet in the face. I'm saying no to my florist. Give me the flowers. I'll arrange it, right? Because I'll do a better job because I know what I'm doing because I love the flowers, right? So that's my authentic self, right? Now, there's so many things that men do or want to do or have an interest in doing that they never get to do because it's, it's something that heterosexual, cisgender men don't do. What I would love to unpack more is this concept of the man box as, as something to unpack, but also how we're, we're all socialized and how men are socialized to learn what uh, our genders and what behaviors are, are normal and expected of us. Well, we have this conversation about men and masculinity and that collective socialization of manhood, right? And when I say the collective socialization, I'm talking about the things we're taught. We may not agree with them, but we're taught. For instance, a six-year-old boy is being taught by his father or his uncle or his coach or his big brother to throw a football. That big brother, coach, father, uncle may say something like, you have to throw hard on that, son. You throw like a... If you can answer that question with what I've always been told it was, it's girl. Right? That's what we know. That's our collective socialization. Now, girls throw just fine, but how do you all know the answer to that? We haven't discussed it. We haven't talked about it, but you know the answer. So that's what we talk about, that collective socialization. It doesn't mean you believe it, but you know it. So what does that six-year-old boy take away from that interaction with that man he's looking up to, trying to learn from? Does he leave that interaction thinking that girls are equal to him or less than him? Well, less than him. And then I learned it from the generation above me, and the men of my generation learned it from the men above us, and we've passed it down to the young men and boys in our life. And we just do it on remote control. And the foundation of that is male dominance, sexism, and patriarchy. That's the foundation. So we do it on remote control, and I want to make clear that this is not an indictment on manhood. Let me say it again, because this is really important. This is not an indictment on manhood. It's actually an invitation to men. 
And it's not about calling men out for what they're doing wrong. It's really about calling men in to be better and different. And we've learned that with the hundreds of thousands, we've probably been in front of more than a million men, physically in front of more than a million men at this point over the last 18 years. And we know that when we're in front of men, if they know better, they'll do better. As men, as fathers, as male identified folks. So we unpack this thing called the man box. So when I say the collective socialization of manhood, our term that we've coined for that is the man box. And we're taught to do all these things within the man box. So as far as our youth, we have this live respect curriculum and we unpack the man box, the thing they've been taught to be men. Because by the time they're five, they already know it. That by the time they're five and going into first grade, our boys know that they're not supposed to cry, for the most part. Some parents let them cry, but for the most part, they're not supposed to cry. And we say things to them like, don't cry. We say, man up, suck it up. Don't act like a little this, don't act like a little that. I'll give you something to cry about, right? We'll do all of those things to our boys, but our girls get to express their emotions fully. And they get to work it through and they get to identify language attached to those emotions so that then they grow up and they can articulate, I'm sad, I'm disappointed, I'm hurt, I'm in pain. All of these things where boys don't really learn those skills or that language, that literacy, the emotional literacy, they don't learn it. So what we do as boys, and we teach our boys to do that, is we stuff those feelings, and the only emotion they're able to project out is anger. And now, so these rigid notions of manhood are not only harmful to women and girls and those who don't conform to gender at all, but also to men and boys, because that emotional stress, when we say don't cry, we're also telling them to not to feel, because they don't know the difference. And that emotional stress then literally manifests itself into physical stress later on in life. And that's where we have all the anxiety that men have that go undiagnosed with depression. Men live about six years less than women. Suicide is about three and a half times higher than women. Male identified youth, suicide is much higher. And then we look at the gender, uh, the, the LGBTQ transgender nonconforming community, that number goes up even higher because the man box pushes those folks even further out because it's gender-based discrimination, heterosexism, homophobia is the glue that keeps the man box together. It's just sad. I feel sad for men. We talk about all these things and I think about the almost, it almost feels like a luxury to be a woman and to be able to go talk to your friends about anything that you want and feel like completely able to have conversations about like your feelings or about you being stressed or worried or anything like that. We don't go through the process that women learn to go through. Generally, I'm talking in general, these are broad strokes, right? This is not right. going to be 100%. But generally, what is true is that the collective socialization of men, while individual men be, may, may, may respond differently, we're taught a certain thing, and this is what I want to speak to. That factual piece that you talk about, that we're all about, not about the process, but about the solution, like get it, getting it done. I don't want to deal with what's happening. I'm just going to try to solve it. But that that eliminates a whole lot of process and a whole lot of learning about ourselves, right? And that's one of the things we want to teach our boys is that it helps you actually figure out problems better when you're able to articulate things further. As men develop that language, then we go deeper. Men want the intimacy. We just never have had a safe space to have the intimacy because whenever we've done that, other men have said, oh, men don't do that. That's what women do. And you don't want to do anything women do because you don't want to be like a woman. 
So Ted, moving in a slightly different direction, we're in a moment right now that our identities and the various intersecting aspects of our identities are so resonant. Can you talk more about how intersectionality and intersecting identities has influenced the way that you think and the way that you work? So with intersectionality, as you say, we're looking at how people come to you and how they identify. So I identify as a cisgendered heterosexual male, right? So there's things that come with that, but I'm also a black male and there's things that come with that, right? I'm also Christian, that's part of my intersection, right? I have ability opposed to challenges as far as physical or mental, right? So someone who has some physical challenges comes with that, right? So there's all these different things. As a parent of six children, and three of those being my biological children, and then three of those being children who came to us as teenagers, one from Nigeria and two who are white, all came to us as teenagers. So we have a family that has mixed races, right? So it's been very interesting And two of the children, one is lesbian and one is gay. Right. So we have all of these things going on, which is wonderful. <laughs> there's a lot to celebrate and there's a lot to talk about. So what I do and what we do as parents is really promote authenticity, back to this authenticity thing. Right. And really encourage our children to speak who they are and to learn from that and to help them teach us as they've grown up. They've taught me who they've been. I have, I've done my best not to shape who they have been or who they would become and have them teach, have it be revealed and then embrace that. It's not always easy because as I said, I'm not cooked yet. So my own socialization wants to sometimes say, no, let's not do that. Let's do this. Right. I wrote an article that's in Refinery29 called What I've Learned Since My Son Came Out. And I wrote it. He came out at 15. I wrote it maybe a year after. And one of the things I talk about is how woke I thought I was as a parent. Right. Ready to embrace him, embracing his full self, ready to, ready to celebrate him embracing his full self, because I expected that he was going to be gay since he was very young. Right. So when he came out, I thought I was ready. And for some things I was, right? I was ready to talk to him about safety, about all kinds of things. But then as he embraced who he was more fully, then he really began to present much differently. Makeup came from time to time. Nails, he's one who will wear a skirt as quickly as he'll wear a pair of pants, right? So it was like, I was ready, but it was also once seeing it, theory and practice are two different things, <laughs> right? So once seeing it and experiencing it, I was like, okay, I got to kind of sit in this and get a little bit more comfortable because it was different. So I believe we've done a good, great job in addressing our own, my own collective socialization of heterosexism, but it's something that continues to learn. And also raising my children is how I continue to learn. Remember the thing I said about the boy throwing the football, right? Well, my son, my oldest son, who's 22 now, when he was maybe 11 years old, I would go out and do this work, promoting healthy manhood, right? Talking to other men about 
anti-sexism and all these other things. And I remember I would kiss my family goodbye, but my oldest son, Josh, would walk me out to the car, pulling the laptop bag behind me, seeing me off to the airport, you know, I'm getting in the car, and I leaned down to my son like any dad would to his oldest child, a father-son moment of bonding, right? I did it probably 50 times before this. And I'd lean down to him and say, all right, son, now you, you know, and fill in the blank, you take care of things around here. You're the man of the house. You got it, son? I got it, dad. Well, he ain't got shit. <laughs> Like, what does he have at 11 years old? Nothing <laughs> happens, what's he going to do? Go to his mama. Now, this is important because I'm going out and doing this work as if I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so, in that moment, when I'm leaning down to him and saying, you got it, son? I'm saying to myself, wait a minute. I'm teaching him wonderful lessons. That's what this is about for dads. We're teaching our son wonderful lessons. We're teaching him to be responsible, to be a protector, to be accountable. Those are wonderful lessons. But it occurred to me in that moment that I'm teaching him those lessons at the expense of his mother. In the same way that we teach that boy to throw harder at the expense of girls. So that's where the lens of male privilege, entitlement, I'm also passing down my entitlement from me to him, right? That male privilege from me to him, like this is yours, now you take care of it, right? So this is an important lesson for dads. This is not an indictment on fatherhood. This is not shaming any dads that are out there because this is what we've learned to do. But we have to start really deconstructing some of those things because I would bet any man who's married to a woman listening to this podcast, if I ask them, when you're not there, does your wife got it? Does she handle things? He will say yes. And then I bet I'll put my paycheck on this. I'll even say to him, and when you're home, <laughs> does, does she make sure you got what you got to get? And she was like, yes, she does. So <laughs> it's not that women aren't capable. This is what the patriarchy, the male, the male dominance, the sexism does. I think there's so much of just of what you talked about in how parents can can be so thoughtful in raising children and how you've been really thoughtful and reflected as you've raised your kids. And so what advice could you share for for other parents, for other dads? Okay, so I would say that I would really challenge other dads to really tap into finding the language to really share what they're going through with their children as well. Especially with our boys. We do better as dads with our daughters. We'll pick them up, we'll embrace them, we'll ask them to share everything that they need to share, and we'll say it's okay and all of those things. We also sometimes have a little short of fuse with our boys if they cry. We don't even go through the process. We just allow them to stop it because we're uncomfortable with it because we never learned how to do that. It's really our inner child as well as theirs that's showing up at that time that we're not comfortable with. Our inner boy, our inner male identified person in this collective socialization. So what we want to do is really ask dads to allow our boys to talk more, right? One of the things that's come with COVID is that boys are talking a bit more at home, right? That's what some of the research has shown is they're actually becoming a bit more verbal, right? 
at home, which is really good. But, but we want to be able to create that space where they're allowed to do that. We want to have conversations. We always want to model with whoever's in our household what respectful behavior is, right? Really helping to create that emotional intelligence and not saying things that denigrate anyone. This is really important to really look at ourselves and not say things that denigrate anyone. And it's in our society right now, there's a lot of challenges, polarization, people are kind of choosing sides. And we really want to, we have to come through a lens of love with our kids as we're addressing all of these issues, because they're going to be bringing things home that their friends are experiencing or that they might see on the news. And we have to help them unpack that in a real loving and caring way. We want to start talking to them about healthy boundaries and that girls are to be valued and that if someone is different from them, that they are to respect those differences, that those differences are important, that they're not to be teased about those differences, that they're not to be made fun of, that they're to be embraced. And we want to lean in to actually be able to learn more about who that person is. We also want to really focus on healthy boundaries, like saying no and being able to say, no, I don't want that, or to ask permission about anything else. Because we want to create that for consent later on. So we need to have conversations, and this is what our parents can do. Men in particular, we need to have conversations with our boys about boundaries, about respect, about consent. Because the conversations we have with our boys, we think we're raising our boys to be good boys, and we are. So we don't have the conversations around consent because we think that they're going to be respectful. And no one's ever had conversations with us around consent when we grew up, except wear a condom. So we feel like it's going to be okay, but we have a conversation with our daughters about consent all the time <laughs> and about boundaries all the time. So we can't have it both ways. We have to really take the time to have these conversations with our boys. And I would suggest to parents with boys to have informal conversations. You're driving somewhere, something comes on the radio, talk about it, like informal, not an in-the-face, sit you down, okay, we're gonna have the sex talk now. Like to do it in a way, also before they go to bed and you're saying goodnight, you turn the light off, have the difficult conversations around whatever it is that they're experiencing because it's a safer space and a less formal space for male-identified youth in, in particular. I think that we would all agree that we could talk to you about all of these things for days. <laughs> Everything I want to keep to keep talking about, but I'm respectful of all of our time. So if you have any last thoughts or closing things that you want to say, and then just thank you so much. I mean, this has been unbelievable. Thank you so much. I would just ask people to check us out we're online at acalltomen.org. And then anything social media is also at acalltomen. On IG, I'm ted.bunch. There's lots of things we offer that are virtual, that are free. Some things have a cost, but there's all kinds of information out there just to help you as parents and also as concerned citizens around these issues. So, so thrilled that you're able to join us and so grateful and so thrilled that you do what you do. Next week, we are talking to Joseph Coltice, who is a professional photographer of the rich and famous, specifically rock stars. Absolutely someone that I think you should all come back and listen to. He talks so much about co-parenting, what it's been like to raise a child with 
all the celebrity that you know he got to experience and how to how to get to know your kids on their level to get more information about us please please visit our website it is heymirza.com and in case you're wondering mirza is m-i-r-z-a you can also follow us on social instagram facebook and twitter at mirza says hey we also have a YouTube channel, uh, Mirza Musings, because we love alliteration. Work Hard, Parent Hard is hosted by Saran Sao and Mel Faxon. It is produced by Connor Arthurs, sound engineered by Georgina Han, who also wrote and composed our theme song. 